Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Blog Talk Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetic Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. We have Jerry Mishuda on as a guest, and we'll be talking about his uh, work in Catholic apologetics and the books that he's written. If you have any questions or you want to call in and ask Gary a question, you can call in at 515-602-9655. And if you have any questions that you'd like to ask me, you can email me at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. That's catholic with a K and at the number four persons.com. I'm also available to come speak at your parish on Many different Catholic topics. You can contact me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. Gary Mishuda is a nationally known Catholic speaker, author, and apologist, and host of the weekday talk show Hands on Apologetics show on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. He was the director of Thy Faith Incorporated, a nonprofit lay-run Catholic apologetics apostolate and editor of its magazine, Hands-On Apologetics. Gary was also the co-host of the local radio show, Hands-On Apologetics Live, on Michigan Catholic Radio. He is also a frequent guest on various Catholic radio shows, such as Catholic Answers Live, Searching the Word, The Sunrise Morning Show, Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio and Cresta in the Afternoon. He gave his inversion story on the journey home on EWTN, and Gary also has been on Pints with Aquinas, The Cordial Catholic, Catholic Table Talk, and Gospel Simplicity. Gary also worked as an uncredited consultant for Steve Ray's Footsteps of God video series, And since 2003, Gary has developed apologetic material for the Eastern Church Evangelization Commission to aid Chaldean Catholic dioceses. Gary currently offers classes on apologetics to Catholic parishes around the country. He teaches middle school and high school apologetics online for the Homeschool Connections and hosts a radio show called Hands-On Apologetics on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And you can tune into that show Monday through Friday from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And if you tune in there, you might even hear me on Gary's show. Gary has written several books on apologetics. And Gary has debated uh, prominent anti-Catholic apologists like James White, 
and John McCarthy and Steve Christie. Gary has a great YouTube channel called The Apocryphal Apocalypse. Gary lives in southeast Michigan with his wife, Christine, and their three children. So welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show, Gary. We're really glad to have you here. How are you doing well, today? Yeah, doing great. The honor's all mine. Uh, it's, it's great to be with you, and thanks for the intro. That was uh, really good. You did your homework. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tried to prepare for the show, and uh, you know, I've had plenty of time to get that done <laughs> since this is our fourth attempt to do this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also let me say that you as a guest on my show, it's like having Babe Ruth on the bench as a pinch hitter because, uh, you know, you are so gracious that whenever I'm in a bind and I need somebody to fill in a last second slot, you come in and you do such a great job on my show that, like, I never have to worry because I know it's going to be a great show no matter what. So, so thank you for your generosity over the last few years. I'm really glad to be on your show when you invite me on, and uh, I, you know, I'm always there on the bench, as you say, waiting to be called in as needed, uh, because I'm always answering questions for Protestants and and other Catholics even, uh, and yeah. so there's always tons of material I can do on your show. Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate it, uh, and but and you volunteered to do that too, which was so nice because. Uh, you know, well, now now you're a radio host. You know how it is that, you know, you have the show all planned and, and things happen. People miss out and, you know, then you have to scramble to figure out what to do. And uh, it's just great to have you. So thanks for doing that. It's It's been it's been great. And I've learned a lot, too, having you on the show. So it's it's a, a twofer for me. Well, I learn a lot listening to your show when you when you have other guests on. And of course, you know, you're. Um, logical fallacies and uh, the church fathers and you know it's always interesting when you come up with one that I'm not familiar with because I've also learned a lot about the church fathers oh yeah 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 I enjoy those too I uh, it's you know it's there's so many of them and some of them are pretty obscure so it's always mm -hmm. fun to, to do that I, I guess people enjoy the segment so life is good Yep. So the main question that everybody wants to know about Gary is like, how did you get into apologetics? Um, well, you know, it, it, um, uh, you know, I grew up Catholic as in a great Catholic home, great parents. Um, and I, I never left the Catholic phase. I'm, I'm what I call an invert. And, uh, you know, uh, when I was just getting into my first full-time job, um, I befriended a fundamentalist Baptist named Susan, who started uh, once she learned I was Catholic. You know, it's funny, Ken. It's <laughs> you know, you get, as a Catholic, you you think, hey, we're all Christians. We're we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And so mm -hmm. when you when somebody asks what you are, and you say I'm Catholic, at least back when I was young and naive, I think they'd be like, oh, okay, great. But, you know, instead with Susan and these other people, when I said I was Catholic, it was almost like somebody put a steak dinner in front of a wolf, you know. <laughs> and and so Susan and her sister, who also worked at the same place, tried to evangelize me. And, and you know, I, you know I, I talked to them and stuff, but I didn't really understand apologetics or even hear about apologetics. And then uh, one day, uh, you know, it was it got to the point where we couldn't talk about anything because she thought I was going to burn in hell, and, and I couldn't figure out why she was having such issues with Catholicism. So we decided to start studying something we both held in common. So that was uh, spiritual warfare. And, uh, you know, when I would start doing that, I noticed uh, lots of left-handed compliments to the Catholic Church, you know, because, like, Satanists, when they worship, they, they don't Bible study, right? Or a black sermon, they do a black mass, right? And mm -hmm. uh, so there's all this stuff here. And then, and then one day I was in my cube, and I was just thinking about some of the things I was talking to Susan about. And, and I had this incredible experience of the Eucharist 
that I realized how Christ is really truly present in the Eucharist. And it just spun my whole world around. And uh, from that point on, I wanted to learn about the faith. I stumbled upon Carl Keating's book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism. And once I read that, it was like everything was there that I, I didn't know that there are real logical, historical, biblical reasons for what we believe as Catholics. And I wrote to Carl. I said, hey, I want to start a ministry like this. This is great stuff. And uh, Carl said, I'll help you start one if you want. And that's how I started my ministry. And the rest is history. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, when, as you were saying, like, you know, when you meet a fellow Christian, you know, like a Baptist or whatever, you know, and you think, oh, well, they're just a fellow Christian. But, you know, for Baptists, you know, at least a good Baptist, you know, they think of Catholics as heretics. And, you know, as you said, that they were all going to hell because we got the wrong religion. Uh, and, you know, where Catholics are generally, you know, more open to their brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, these fundamentalist Baptists, you know, think of us as the enemy or, um, you know, as bad as Satanists. Right. Yeah. I like when I'm discussing things with uh, people online, I'll, you know, refer to them as a brother and sister in Christ. (laughs) And and they'll tell me, I'm not your brother or sister. (laughs) It's like, uh, well, (laughs) I think of you that way, even if you don't think of me that way. (laughs) Yeah, I think part of it was, too, I was a little isolated. I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. So I I knew some Protestants, but, you know, uh, most of them were pretty favorable to Catholicism. It wasn't until I got into the real world that I noticed and met people that, you know, have some very deep uh, difficulties with the Catholic Church. And, and uh, yeah, so that, that's that been my path ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was growing up, um, my dad married a Lutheran woman. Um, my mom went to the Lutheran Church while the rest of us went to the Catholic Church. Um, and when we... Pre- said grace before eating, you know, my mom wouldn't make the sign of the cross because it's one of those Catholic things. Um, But there really wasn't, um, you know, any feuding in our household about the Catholic faith or the Lutheran faith and which one was correct or not. Um, I do remember hearing some talk that, you know, because Lutherans, of course, don't um, have any teaching about purgatory. uh, And, Lutherans have this understanding that, you know, like purgatory is a place you go for the, to have your sins forgiven before you you go to heaven. And they think that, you know, um, like Catholics believe that, you know, this purgatory is kind of like a second chance place. Um, and Lutherans just believe that when you die, you're either going to heaven or hell. And of course, we Catholics share that same belief. When you die, you're judged whether you're going to heaven or hell. But so that we can be fully sanctified before we enter heaven, we have to go undergo that final sanctification, and that's what happens in purgatory. So uh, all those Lutherans that don't believe in purgatory, well, hopefully they find out the truth when they die as they're going through purgatory. Yep, that's true. Um, yeah, so um, it, it, I've never, like I, I, I've never understood why there's difficulty with purgatory, honestly. I mean, Luther originally believed it. He eventually got rid of it. But um, if it's correctly understood, I think most Protestants already have a working understanding of purgatory. They just don't like to call it that. Right. And even like the Orthodox, you know, they don't have, um, they don't use the word purgatory, but they generally all have some belief in, uh, you know, a final purification before you enter heaven, um, depending on the Orthodox Church that you're discussing. They'll have different ideas, but 
they recognize that we have to be completely sanctified to enter heaven. As right. it tells us in Revelation chapter 21. Right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, But like you said, with Orthodox, it's kind of all over the place. Some do, some don't, some are closer, some are further. Uh, you really, it's almost like treat it individually. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about uh, your books here. And uh, the first one on my list, I'm not saying it's the first one you wrote, um, mm -hmm. the, according, the Gospel According to James McCarthy, a Catholic response to the book, The Gospel According to Rome. Yeah, that's um, that is the first book I wrote, and um, I was just uh, telling my homeschoolers about it. Uh, well, <laughs> as, as you know, Ken, uh, for a while there was a playbook used by anti-Catholics called Roman Catholicism by Lorraine Bettner, and uh -huh. uh, and then Carl Keating came out with his Catholicism Fundamentalism, the book that started me in apologetics, that knocked the stuffing out of Bettner's book, and. Um, so uh, right around that time that Carl came out, also the catechism came out, and there's this fellow, James McCarthy, who is part of a large Irish Catholic family. He left the church. He became an ardent Baptist and anti-Catholic, started his own ministry to pull Catholics out of the church. And uh, he wrote this book called The Gospel According to Rome, which is a real hack job as far as uh, you know, misrepresenting Catholicism. Uh, slightly better than Bettner's book, but not much. And uh, and this became the playbook. So when I first started apologetics, everybody to a discussion group with Protestants, like pretty much everybody would have this book under their seat or, or with them because they were using it. And uh, so I thought, you know what, I need to write a book to do basically what Carl did to Catholicism, Fundamentalism, and, and that's McCarthy book. And so that was the very first book I wrote. Um, and I, I think it's it's okay. Uh, uh, I think I could write a much better book now, but for the time, I think it was it was adequate. And uh, and we sold enough that the publisher said, "Hey, uh, you know, if you have any other books, we'll publish it." And uh, but unfortunately, today uh, this book's no longer in print. So, but trust me, no one's missing anything. It, it, it's a decent. <laughs> You know, first run at apologetics, but and it was good for its time. So I, I'm not worried about bringing it back in print. Uh huh. And you know, it was at least a response to, you know, James's book, uh, even if it wasn't, you know, um, a Sherman tank attack on it. You know, it was at least a, a machine gun attack. <laughs> Yeah, at least there was some for Catholics response to go and and yeah, and I, I was able to find some things that he, you know, some sleight of hand that he did that, you know, it, it was useful. It had its uses, but you know, just like the McCarthy book, I don't know if it's even being used anymore. Um, you know, it, it's it's done its job. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, so the next book I have on the list here is Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger. The Untold Story of the Old Testament Canon. Yeah, this was uh, the product of my ministry. Um, we would do parish talks, we'd do conferences, things like that. And we'd always do questions from the audience. And invariably, no matter where, there would always be at least a couple of questions from people asking, why is it that Protestant Old Testaments are missing books in their Bible? Did, did we add books? Did they remove books? What's going on there, right? And I also knew in my own research that this is a real pivotal question, especially it's one of those questions that Protestants really don't have an answer for. Um, but uh, so I thought, you know what, that's a popular subject. I'm I'm really interested in it. Why don't I put this in the, you know, do some research and maybe make a book. And uh, that's where the first edition of why Catholic Bibles came out, why Catholic Bibles are bigger is um, basically answers that question just based on history. Who did someone remove these books or add the books? And so I, I go all the way from Sirach to uh, Vatican I, I believe. 
and show the trajectory and, and prove beyond a doubt that Protestants were the ones who removed these books and the Catholic Church was just following antiquity the whole time. And, uh, and that was, you know, I, I was surprised in my research. I thought, you know, there's tons of apologetic books that's been written over the centuries on this issue. But, you know, the latest one to be written was A.E. Brain's book back in 1898. Hmm. So, yeah, so the, there was a huge gap there that needed to be filled. So I put it on the market, and it, since it's the only book on the subject, <laughs> it became like <laughs> the book to go to on <laughs> the question of the Deuterocanon. And uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the publisher who originally made it uh, uh, closed its doors, and Catholic Answers expressed interest in in publishing it. So I did a second edition. I updated, made it much more streamlined and robust. And uh, so Catholic Answers now puts out the second edition. And, and from what I see, it's still you know a good seller because I think it's still the pretty much the only book on on the market there's a book that just recently came out on the canon by catholics with by uh, william albrecht and father christian Kappas. so now i got competition Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's another book out there on this subject but of course they're just building on what you already did you know years ago and everything Yeah, yeah. So it's all good. There's plenty of room in you know, the pool for plenty of people. There's so much to, so many aspects to that question. And it's and for me, I th- I find it really, really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So the next one I have is how to wolf-proof your kids: a practical guide to keeping your kids Catholic. Yeah, this one also came from my experience doing ministry is, you know, invariably after talks, I would get three or four people, you know, children even saying my parents left the church. You know, how can I bring them back? Or more likely it's parents saying that their children left the church. And, you know, and they would all say the same thing. They would say, if I only knew what you said in this talk back when, you know, back when my kids were young or whatever, they they wouldn't have left. And I really regret not knowing this. And I thought, you know what, we're we're kind of doing back-end fixes. You know, you and I, we live in Michigan. It's the Motor City, right? Right, the Motor City. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, uh you know, it's like we put out a car and then, uh, but it's not designed right. So you have to do all these back-end fixes. You know, the customers have to do this. Eventually, the auto industry wakes up and redesigns the car to fix that stuff. And I, I felt like that's kind of like where apologetics is, that um, we have all this great stuff, but people don't find it until their loved one leaves the church. And usually by then it's too late. So I thought we need to do some sort of front-end work, you know, redesign work. And that's where Wolf Proof the Kids come in because um, what I wanted to do is take all those points that I normally give, you know, that would help people, you know, prevent people from leaving the church and tell it to parents so that when they're raising their kids, they can incorporate certain things that makes it harder for people to pull them out of the pews. And uh, so mm-hmm. it's, I call it front-end apologetics, step back-end. So um, so it, that's an interesting book, and maybe someday I'll, I'll update it and re, you know, do another edition. But uh, that's kind of the thought behind that book. <clears throat> right. And I'm... I know for me personally, you know, my catechesis was not very good. And even though I didn't leave the Catholic Church... Um, I I tell people that I learned more about the Catholic faith in my world history class in high school than I did actually in catechism. Um, <laughs> if, at least the part, you know, that were interesting to me, you know, like the history right. of the church, mm-hmm. um, and which is why so much of my apologetics, you know, is related to the history of the church. Uh, of course, you know, like what the Catholic church teaches, but also how early did it teach this? And, uh, you know, I just don't remember that from my catechism classes. I'm not saying that they didn't try. um, And I, 
because maybe they tried and I didn't pay attention. Um, and so I'm not pointing any the finger at anybody but me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. And you know, you can have great catechism classes, but if the kids aren't paying attention, it, it's a prick wall. I was the same way too. I think all kids are. I mean, how many things do you remember that you learned in, in grade school? You know, generally not very much, unless it's something you're always using. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, you're right. I mean, in a way, we shouldn't fault the programs. But, you know, there are things that we could do, I think, better. And then that's where Wolf Proof comes in. Is there's some things that parents need to let their kids know because that's what um, anti-Catholics are going to zero in on, especially those who want to pull them out of the pew. Right. So the next one on my list is Making Sense of Mary. Yeah, this one, uh, Making Sense of Mary, was, um, I'm trying to think how it came about. I think it was largely from a book. You know, Ken, you're kind of like a research nerd like me. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. a book out that the whole book is dedicated to a single verse of Scripture. It's uh, called The First Gospel, Genesis 3.15. And... uh, by Dominic Unger. And this book goes into the first uh, good news, the first prophecy about Jesus, and specifically its implications for the Immaculate Conception. And I I love this book. I read it dozens of times. And one of the beautiful things about it is he has quotes from uh, East, West, and uh, Eastern fathers, uh, Syriac fathers, on Genesis 3.15, and as I was reading it, I started noticing that the fathers all have a kind of similar narrative of the fall. And uh, I was able to develop that into, I think, a kind of unique um, apology for Mary, and one that is really helpful for Protestants. And um, not only for the Immaculate Conception, but also for other Marian teaching as well. So I decided to put it into book form. And because in the field, as I was using this, you know, newfangled approach, because basically what it, what I, I've realized was the old um, Mary is new Eve argument uh, is kind of a non-starter. And that was one of the big arguments that apologists were using back in the 90s, uh, Mary is new Eve. Um, and what I realized is that like I said, it, it doesn't prove anything. It's just a very interesting factoid. But for Protestants, there has to be some sort of pragmatic aspect to it. You know, why is it necessary to believe this? It, it doesn't, being true isn't enough. There has to be, how does this fit in with salvation? It doesn't fit in with salvation. It's a, a side issue, Right. So anyway, I, I realized our approach to Mary's New Eve is very cardboard-like. It doesn't show anything, and it's not pragmatic, so it, it's a failure. But how the early church fathers understood the New Eve story uh, was very robust and actually does have a pragmatic element. And, uh, you know, I had uh, some non-Catholics who, by the time I was done giving my uh, you know, laying out the, the, the old version, uh, they were like almost jumping up and down with joy. But they loved it, you know, and it made sense. And it made sense of not only the Immaculate Conception, but the Assumption and other Marian teachings. And um, so I said, yeah, I got to put this into a book. So I did. Uh, I put it in there into the book. And also along the way, while I was putting this book together, I befriended a, a Lutheran pastor, Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor, who uh, from Missouri, surprise, surprise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, he, he was on the canon. He was like 100% on the canon because he, he knew from his research as a Lutheran that what I was saying about Luther was absolutely correct. And I told him I'm doing this thing on Mary, and he said, you know, he has some issues with Mary, but he's open to hearing. Actually helped me tweak the book because at that time, yeah, most anti-Catholics were Calvinist or Reformed. And uh, when I wrote my book, it really did have a lot of Reform, uh, oh, what do I say, like a uh, kind of accent to it. You know, there were things that mm-hmm. other Protestants would bristle, but would make a lot of sense to uh, 
reform people. So he helped me kind of tweak the language so that the the book is amenable to to all Protestants. And uh, and actually, he was he was convinced on a, a couple of Marian teachings that he wasn't before. He's helped me in the book. So um, so that's making sense of Mary. And uh, the part bad part was, you know, the bad part with this book is there's so many books on Mary in apologetics. The the market's flooded. And I, I think this book never really got its fair share or, you know, it, it never really got um, a large reading audience enough that word got out that there's some new stuff in here that you don't find in other books. Nevertheless, you know, it's still good. And I think uh, it's it's still a great pickup for someone who uh, knows a non-Catholic that is struggling with certain Marian teachings or maybe a Catholic who... Um, wants a, a different approach to Mary because it's really written for a Protestant reader or, um, you know, someone who entered into the church. That's another thing that I found uh, many times people become Catholics and they accept Marian teaching because they believe in the authority of the church. And, uh, but they're still uncomfortable about it. And I found that that book, when they read it, it helps out a lot because then it, it kind of, it, 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 you know, it speaks to them as former Protestants, you know, and uses reasoning that they, they understand to kind of connect the dots. So, so yeah, I, I love that book. It's, it's a shame that I, you know, it sold, it sold well, but it's a shame. I think it should have sold better. Mm-hmm. The title of making sense of Mary, you know, is a great, uh, you know, I think it's a title that really tells you what the book would be about and people need to, you know, if people have questions about Mary, you know, like, well, this is the book that makes a sense of Mary for you. Uh, and I always tell people that everything the Catholic church teaches about Mary is based on what the Catholic church teaches about Jesus. So in the end, it's all about Jesus and not Mary. Um, But, you know, Protestants, of course, are taught that, you know, that Catholics worship Mary or think of her as a goddess or something, and they just have bad information about what the Catholic Church actually teaches about Mary. Uh, And if they really knew what the Catholic Church (laughs) taught about Mary and why we teach it, you know, it would perhaps help them to better understand. And uh, that's why I think, you know, just the title alone, you know, should attract people to it. Like, you know, this is how the Catholic Church makes sense of Mary. And as you say, it's written for a Protestant audience. It should help explain to them, you know, why we teach what we teach. Yeah, yeah. It's a big picture approach. You know, it's kind of um, the cover kind of says it, you know, it's a there's a piece that's missing in the puzzle of redemption. And that that's a very big piece. And that's Mary. It's just people don't realize it. So, yeah. Um, Yeah. So I I don't know. You know, it still sells. And, um, you know, I I think uh, I think anybody will get something out of it, even a seasoned apologist. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the next one I have here is Behind the Bible, What the Bible Assumes You Already Know. Yep, that one is, um, I was uh, writing columns for Michigan Catholic, and uh, uh, Dave Armstrong already did the apologetic column, so they said, why don't you write some stuff about the Bible, right? Because, uh, you know, I, working in apologetics, you have to know some scripture, and uh, so I, I try to come up with really interesting angles, usually apologetic angles, but focusing on particular passages of Scripture. And uh, the column was pretty uh, popular from what I understand. And, uh, you know, after doing all these columns over a couple of years, oh, by the way, yeah, I should throw this story too. It's kind of funny. Unbeknownst to me, uh, Michigan Catholic submitted 
my article along with a couple of other articles to um I guess the National Catholic Press Society or something like that, some national organization of Catholic uh, um, Catholic uh, media, and mm-hmm. uh, my column won an award. Um, <clears throat> so I Great. became an award-winning columnist <laughs> <laughs> by doing that. It, it was so funny. It was. Uh, I had a lot of fun. I still have the the thing here in my office, the the little certificate they gave me, um, because I, I was able to go to my wife and say, "Well, how does it feel to be married to an award-winning uh, columnist?" But but I'm actually really grateful that they they gave me the award. I mean, it is a, a you know great honor. <clears throat> but you uh-huh. know, on the other hand, there aren't a lot of um, Bible columns out there in parish. Uh, dioceses, newspapers, and so on. So I don't know how stiff the competition was. But um, nevertheless, that was kind of cool. So basically what the book is, is I wrote all these columns. And, and, you know, newspapers kind of like tissue paper. Once you use it, um, you throw it away, you know. Mm-hmm. And this content is, you know, it was good content. So I, I hated that. It was just going to disappear. So I put it into book form and I arranged it in biblical order. So if someone's maybe doing a Bible study or doing Bible reading on their own, they could look up and see what kind of articles I did on a particular book. And, you know, learn some interesting factoids and things to impress your friends and learn maybe a little bit of apologetics as well. Uh-huh. And that way uh, people... You know, we kind of get like the story behind the story in the Bible. Right. Is that yep. what it kind of helps with? Yeah, that's actually a much better descriptor than I gave. <laughs> <laughs> because that, that's usually my approach. I try to kind of show that, you know, if you know a little Bible background, what you just read, you know, there's a whole nother aspect to what you just read. Yeah, I I often encourage people that, you know, to really understand the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, you need to know about the culture that it was written in and what was going on at the time and in the world even. And, you know, for so many people, just reading the Bible is intimidating. And then when you tell them that, you know, well, you need to know all this other stuff, too, to really understand the Bible. And they're like, oh, man, I'm never going to get this. <laughs> And, yeah. you know, as Catholics, yeah. of course, we have the advantage of the Catholic Church and 2,000 years of history. And um, so we we understood the Bible in its context 2,000 years ago. So, yeah. Yeah, and I don't think we'll ever totally understand the Bible. You know, it's just so deep. Um, mm-hmm. even, even with 2,000 years of reflection, I, I think we're still, there's lots of gold in Scripture that we haven't discovered yet. Absolutely. And uh and it's, I'm really glad that the Catholic Church, you know, allows us to read the Bible and interpret it for ourselves, you know, within the confines of what the church teaches. Um, you know, there's like a whole football field of you know, viewpoints you can hold. Um but you got to stay within bounds of what the Catholic Church teaches. Like, you know, you can read the Bible and decide that, you know, well, I don't think Jesus became God until he was baptized or something like that. You know, some other early heresy that the church has already worked out. And uh, the church defines the boundaries for us, but there's a whole lot of space inside those boundaries for us to mine for gold, as you say, in the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, next I have on my list here 15 myths, mistakes, and misinterpretations about the Deuterocanon. Yeah, yet another book on the Deuterocanon. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this one, um, you you know, the original Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger book was actually going to be like two volumes. I think it came out to around 1,000 pages. And uh, which, of course, no one would ever read and no one would probably ever publish. So I had to cut it down a lot 
which was good because I cut out a lot of more ambiguous things. You know, it, it basically was a stronger book because I, I did some editing on it and got it down to a decent size. Uh, but a lot of stuff was left on the cutting room floor, so to speak. And um, and some of it was actually pretty good. It just I, I couldn't put everything in. You know, once I realized that this is the years on the subject, I tried to include everything because I figured why Catholic Bibles are bigger will be the last book I ever write on the subject. So <laughs> I might as well include, you know, as much as I can. And uh, but anyway, um, I think it was when we were doing the second edition to uh, why Catholic Bibles are bigger. I thought, you know what, it, there's some really interesting things. And uh, it's not just stuff about the, the canon per se, but I also wanted to, to give some work where I expose a lot of the sleight of hand and just uh, bad arguments that are made by non-Catholics. Uh, you know, Ken, one thing that ticks me off, uh, it's a pet peeve of mine, which is probably why I'm into apologetics, is I hate people, I hate it when people are deceived. I, you know, I can't stand that when people are lied to and deceived. Mm-hmm. And in the area of the Deuterocanon, there is so much mis, purpose, mis, purposely misquoted things, um, uh, misrepresentations, uh, you know, lots of sleight of hand. And so I, I, I put the 15 minutes together basically because it includes some things that I left out of the book originally that I thought would be great to have in the book. And also I wanted to expose uh, some of this really shady kind of uh, Protestant apologetics on the issue. Mm -hmm. Well, it's good that, uh, you know, you have like a a book that's kind of like specializes in debunking the fake news on the Deuterocanon. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of it, too. And then the next book I have is The Case for the Deuterocanon, Evidence and Arguments. So, like, you have the book, you know, debunking the bad stuff, and then you make another book on the positive side. Yeah, um, that came out of the debate with James White. Um, I did a debate. Actually, Pat Madrid was originally scheduled to do it, but he thought, since I already wrote a book on the subject, I should do it. So I was glad that he let me step in. And I debated White, and I thought the, the debate went well. Um, and afterwards, I, it was interesting feedback because uh, this one person, as a Protestant here in Michigan, actually, emailed me, and he heard the debate, and he wanted to talk, talk about it. And one thing he said was, he said, you know, yeah, you you did such and such, but you never actually – gave reasons why these books should be scripture because he said, you know, I don't care about Martin Luther. I don't care about Protestant history. I don't really care much about, you know, early church history, but if you can show me these books should be scripture, you know, I'm, I'm willing to accept them. I thought, you know, a lot of Protestants are like that. They're not wed to particular confessions or, or even historic Protestantism. And, and, I thought that would be a real interesting book. So I uh, I put together the case for the Deuterocanon, which is a positive case for the book. And it was kind of neat because, you know, Ken, you can have a, a bunch of data, right, a bunch of evidence. And if you're, asked, if you're trying to answer one question, you look at the evidence in a certain way. But if you're trying to answer another question, when you look at the same evidence, some evidence doesn't pertain to the issue. And some evidence that normally wouldn't pertain becomes very important. So mm-hmm. um, so I put this case together. It's a cumulative case. And what I show is a step-by-step why there are solid reasons to believe that these seven Old Testament books really are canonical and inspired. Right. And, and uh, uh yeah, you know, like in, you know, the church fathers quote from the Deuterocanon, um, but again, you know, just because they quote from the Deuterocanon uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it was in the Bible, or it doesn't doesn't mean that it has to be in the Bible, right? Yeah, but 
making yeah, a case for the theology that they teach, you know, gives a person a reason to think that they should be in the Bible. Right. Yeah. People can quote for edification or because they, they liked, you know, it's just a nice turn of phrase, but that doesn't necessarily mean they thought it was canonical inspired. But, you know, there are some indicators like when they say it's inspired, that's a good indicator it's inspired. Or um, when they use it to confirm doctrine or they use it to carry some sort of um, theological weight in an argument that indicates that they accept it as scripture. And so it was kind of cool. I went through it and, uh, and uh, like I said, looked at the evidence in a different light. And I, like it's, I think it's one of my favorite books personally. I, I keep looking at it and referring to it. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's great that you made a case for why it needs, you know, the Deuterocanon needs to be in the Bible instead of just having to be on the defense all the time. It's like, you know, here's the offensive case for the the Deuterocanon. Yeah. So. Yeah. The next one I have here is Revolt Against Reality. Aha, Revolt Against Reality. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but our world is crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, this was a few years ago when I was together. It just Things were just getting crazier and crazier and spinning out of control. And uh, I thought, you know, I don't have solutions to how – we could put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but I think it's important at least to frame how we got to where we are, and then maybe we can work a path out of it. So um, what I did was I back-engineered the craziness today and looked back into history at how did we end up where we are today, and um, I, I brought it all the way back to the Incarnation because I think the incarnation is really where sanity was established when God became man that revolutionized mm -hmm. Western society and uh, revolutionized everything, you know? Um, but then I thought th there's a backstory to this. So I, I thought, well, you know what, if I'm going to go back to the incarnation, I might as well go back to the very beginning. So the book actually starts with the, the garden, you know, the lie of the serpent, which right. amazingly, you know, that lie of the serpent, runs throughout like every major problem we have throughout history. And so um, I start there at the garden. I work my way up to the incarnation. And then I show it's basically man's battle against the incarnation um, and trying to find a source of unity apart from Christ. And what, uh, what happens here, I'll give you a little spoiler alert as you go through history Every time we try to do that, we just make things worse, and then we try to fix those problems, and that adds new problems to the equation. And uh, mm -hmm. so today we kind of sit at the end point of a long, you know, revolution or, yeah, revolt against uh, Christ, who's a revolt against he who is. And, um, and, and, you know, Ken, when I finished the book, the, the end was so bleak. It's <laughs> so dark that I thought, you know, I can't end a book like this because, you know, somebody's going to finish this book in just despair. So I decided right. I'm going to look around, and this is a few years ago, and try to look for some bright spots where reality is pushing it, pushing back, right? Um, and I was able to find a few that a few glimmers of hope that, you know, the thing about reality is you can. You can ignore it. You can explain it away. You can try to sweep it under the rug. But ultimately, reality is the only game in town because it's the only thing that's real. You know, the rest mm -hmm. is just our imagination. And so, you know, I was I found some issues that it seems like people are starting to run up against things like, you know, the women's transgenders um, trying to compete as women. Um, but right. that's just one of many things I found. And uh, so I added an extra chapter called Reality Strikes Back. And uh, it's been actually a pretty good seller from what I understand from Catholic Answers. And uh, so I'm, I'm really pleased with that book. Right. People can come up with ideas and 
and try and say, well, this is the new truth, but you know, reality is still reality. And uh, if you can revolt against it all you want, but you know, gravity still works every day. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you might call a hot stove uh, ice cream, but you're still burning your hand. You know, mm-hmm. right? That's a weird analogy, but I think it works. Yeah. And but that's you know part of the uh, the revolt against reality is by you know naming things different. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it goes into all the back history and philosophy and and stuff like that to it. So. Yeah. That's my kind of view of the world. Mm-hmm. And you know. The ancient philosophers, we, there's a lot of wisdom there that people don't know about, and uh, you know, they, as they, the saying goes, you know, those that don't know history are doomed to repeat it, and and some people think that just because old guys wrote it, you know, they weren't very up to date and can't be really valid, <laughs> but <laughs> there right. really is a lot of wisdom in the old philosophers. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's um. And actually, you know, one thing I'm really pleased, I think I did hit the nail on the head on this book because I've read other people using different lines of research who came to the same conclusion as I did or conclusions as I did. And also that last chapter that I did, um, like I said, I originally wrote this about three years ago or four years ago. Um, Some of it has actually become even more true today. So there's predictive power in the book too. So I, I think I, I came pretty darn close to hitting the nail on the head on that book. Good job. Okay. So the next one I have is hostile witnesses. Oh yes. That's uh, you know, how the enemies of the church prove Christianity. Um, that one, um, that's another favorite of mine. I keep referring back to it because it's basically you know, over the years, Ken, doing apologetics, I don't know about you, but I always have, like, I will run across something that's really fascinating, but at the time, I don't have any use for it, so I kind of file it away in my memory. Um, mm-hmm. And then hopefully I can use it later on. Well, you know, over the years doing apologetics, I had noticed time and time again how there's these surprising admissions by people about certain truths about the Christian faith or Catholicism or whatever. And and these are from the enemies of the church. Like um, the analogy I use is like um, they would what they're trying to do is avoid obstacles, right? There's certain there's certain things about Christianity or Catholicism that is so obvious that they can't deny it, so they try to explain it away or avoid it. It's kind of like watching traffic when there's construction. When you see all the trucks moving into one lane ahead of you, you know that your lane's probably blocked, right? And so um, what I did was I made this book, and I put it chronologically, of the enemies of the faith. And I highlight, starting with the New Testament onwards, uh, how the enemies kind of begrudgingly admit certain things that are denied today. Um, which is a really cool thing. It's kind of like the flip side of like positive evidence. It's almost like a photo negative of reality. And so, for example, uh, somebody might say Christianity made up things about miracles. There weren't really miracles. Well, I have testimony from Jews who uh, refused to allow Christians to say the name of Jesus over a sick person because they might get healed. Now, I think that bespeaks of a real phenomenon happening because otherwise, why would they do that if, if it wasn't actually happening and Jews weren't converting to Christianity because of it? So uh, that's a really cool book. I don't think it's self-help. We kind of stumbled out of the blocks trying to promote it. But um, it's one of those books I keep going back to because there's all these great quotes in it. And it's a very powerful tool for apologetics because not only can you give the positive evidence, but you can show the negative evidence also recognizes. And, you know, 
the the quotes of the people with the wrong understanding of Christianity helps prove what the correct correct and you know original understanding of Christianity was. So yep. Uh it's if people understand the premise of the book, you know, they'll find great truth inside of it. Yeah. And, getting that premise across is hard though. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And speaking of truth, uh, the last one I have on the list, I think, is your latest book, The Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Jesus Taught. Yep, this one's by Emmaus Road Press, my first outing with them with Scott Hahn. Uh, I wrote it at the same time I wrote uh, Revolt Against Reality. And uh, so Catholic Answers didn't want to do two books at once. So I shopped around and uh, Scott Hunt said, hey, we'd, we'd like to do this. Uh, basically, it is a, a kind of interesting approach to explaining how we know that the Gospels are true. What I found with evangelical apologists is because they reject sacred tradition, their defense of the Gospels are good, but there's a lot of holes in it. And atheists exploit those holes. And what I do in this book is I show that, starting from ground zero, that you can make a case, a really robust case, that the Gospels are true, they are reliable, and that sacred tradition is also true as well. And uh, I'm hoping that evangelicals will pick it up and see, I mean, once they see that, I think, that'd be a strong impetus for them to accept sacred tradition and hopefully come to the fullness of Christ in his church. Right. And, uh, you know, Protestants being stuck with only the Bible alone, um, they're often afraid to look into church history because, you know, so many of them become Catholic when they do that. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, but again, you know, when you start learning how the, early Christians understood the Bible before they had a Bible and uh, the culture that it was written in, like we talked about before, uh, the Bible makes so much more sense. Uh, And it's our Protestant brothers and sisters are missing out, you know, when they won't look at Christian history and the church fathers to find out the big picture. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I, I also have a whole bunch of things that I've, you know, accumulated over the years, and I show how the Gospels are formatted for memorization. I show how we can know what the meaning of the Gospels are, uh, the canon, everything in that book. And uh, last time I talked to Scott Hahn, uh, he said that he was he was pretty happy with it, and. Uh, you know, that made my millennium. I don't know, but you can. But for Scott Hunt to give a thumbs up, uh, mm-hmm. man, it's like, hey, I, how, where do you go from here, you know? Right. <laughs> oh, kind of like the the only higher award would be, uh, uh, well, maybe one from the Pope or yeah. or when you're in heaven and God, you know, tells you, you know, hey, you did a good job on that book. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, that's the ultimate goal. That's the yep. ultimate goal. Um, so, uh, before we lose our live audience, I wanted to give a plug for your YouTube channel, the apocryphal apocalypse. Um, so say a little bit about that and then we'll go over time here a little bit and talk about it some more for the, uh, people that tune in later for the podcast or, um, okay. Or, um, after show. Yeah. That's a channel I do with William Albrecht and David Zavaras. It's on YouTube called Apocrypha Apocalypse. And uh, basically, it's where we go through all the evidence for these seven books that Protestant and Jewish Bibles don't have. And it's all in video form. And we do some long to the weeds. And we do some short format things and also interact with other videos and uh, really appreciate people check it out and if you're there please subscribe and like and stuff because the channel is growing and I'm so thankful for that because that means more and more Protestants are seeing it on their feed and this is information they need to know because a lot of uh, Protestants have lied to them about the history of these books 
Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see, how many years have you been doing the Apocryphal Apocalypse channel? Um, maybe a year and a half. I'm not quite sure. That's a good question. Okay. Because uh, I know, like, when I, I don't know, I'll listen to your videos that you do, you know, either with William or with uh, um, David and maybe all, all three of you there. Uh, but, you know, you really get into the into the weeds as to why, you know, these books belong in the Bible and uh, the great information that are in there. And uh, I also like how you debunk the arguments, you know, that people come up with to say that they didn't belong in there and, you know, like this church father said they're not scripture or um, this guy didn't include them in the canon things like that. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. So I'm, yeah. I really encourage people to, you know, listen to your watch and or listen to your videos on the, the channel to really get the in-depth information, you know, that is available in those books, as well as, you know, why they actually belong in the Bible and debunk all the arguments against it. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I, I think, uh, you know, I've received emails from Protestants who have been watching the channel and uh, some of them become convinced and that's great because now they got the whole word of God not just a sanitized version of it right and you know for Protestants that are so focused on the Bible and then they're missing seven books from their Bible uh, you know if you really want all the word of God then it needs to be in there and uh, I remember you one of your videos, you talked about how, um, like, after Protestants started dropping the Deuterocanonical books from their Bibles, uh, because many, as you know, many Protestants don't know that uh, even after Luther downgraded these books from in the Bible, uh, they continued to be published in Bibles, and then eventually Protestants started stopped publishing them in the Bible uh, and how some publishers, you know, continued to promote their Bibles as having all the books uh, because other Protestant Bibles were missing these books now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most modern day Protestants don't have any idea about that. And right. so many of them, well, some are really, they think that the King James Bible is the only, you know, valid English translation. And then they have no idea that the King James Bible used to have the Deuterocanonical books in there. Yeah, there's a whole history people don't know about. And there's a reason, too. It's they uh, they definitely don't want, you know, let's face it, it's embarrassing and it's also uh, incredibly uh, destructive too. When if you find out that uh, Protestant theology needed to get rid of part of the Word of God in order to be called biblical, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they, they they forsake the Word of God for what is it? They uh, uh, boy, now I can't remember. It's uh, they uh, got rid of the Word of God for the sake of their tradition, right? Yeah. Yep. And. Um, a lot of Protestants still talk about how, well, the Jews, you know, don't have these books in their Bible anymore. Um, but I point to them that, you know, at the time of Jesus, you know, the most common version of the scriptures that people were using was the Septuagint. And the Septuagint has these books in there. And it wasn't until um, after the Bar Kapha revolt that the Jews rejected these books and you know that was like 136 140 AD uh and the the Jews that were rejected these books you know were the ones that had rejected Jesus and Christianity at that time so i asked protestants you know well why do you accept the canon of scripture that 
the Jews that rejected Jesus use instead of accepting the canon of scripture that the Jews that accepted Jesus use, which would be the Septuagint. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, um, you know, it, it's funny, Ken, because compared to uh, rabbinic Judaism, the Jews today, Christianity mm-hmm. is old time religion. You know, we were there first. In a way, uh, <laughs> rabbinic Judaism came after Christianity, oddly enough, and mm-hmm. so did their canon. So when Luther opted for the rabbinic canon, he's actually opting for a post-Christian canon, like you said. Right. Well, I guess that about wraps things up for today. Um, okay. Thank you all for tuning in, and thank you so much for coming on, Gary. Uh, I'm, it was really an honor to have you on here, and uh, well, maybe we'll have you on again someday, like when next time you publish another book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Sure thing. So if you have any follow-up questions, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on Facebook. And if you'd like to have me come speak at your parish uh, on many different Catholic topics, you can send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the world. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.